Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the message we've already had and that you are guiding and leading and teaching how to speak in front of groups. And we ask you to bless this time as we look at the book of Isaiah. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue in Isaiah 53. And as I said last week, Isaiah 53 is one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. All right, so we started with it. He shall be... He shall grow up as a tender plant in dry ground. He will be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we talked about how Jesus was rejected. He was not an accepted man in his day. And, you know, kind of a strange thing. You know, we would think if God was going to come to this world, he'd go to the palace and, and have the best life. And no, he gets born to a poor family from a town that, you know, we, we think, of, okay, we, he was born... In Bethlehem, which is one thing, Bethlehem wasn't that great a town either when he was born there. And he's going to live in Nazareth as a young man, a young boy. Nazareth was considered the armpit of Israel. All right. Uh, when Nathaniel goes, does anything good come from Nazareth? He wasn't being funny. You know, it would be like, you know, for us here in this area, you know, you know, you're, you're, you live in Birdland. <laughs> You know, does anything good come out of Birdland? And yes, we know it does, but I mean, it's got that kind of reputation. It's the wrong side of the tracks. And that's where God chose to be raised, you know, on the wrong side of the tracks so that everybody would always be looking down on him. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't born with the silver spoon in his mouth, you know, uh, with good looks and the, and the person that everybody's going to look at. That was not the description we have of him from Isaiah. So we're going to continue at verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we, did not, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of, his, of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all." He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a, as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? He was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. So this is the picture of Jesus. This is very clearly a picture of Jesus, a man despised and rejected. And it says, surely or truly, he bore our griefs. When we think about this and really understand what Jesus went through, he lived a life in utter poverty, utter despair, utter rejection from a part of the country that nobody cared to see anybody from. And, you know, we look at what Jesus went through. And it's kind of fun. When I'm out of the prison, it's kind of fun because these guys go, well, you know, I was falsely accused. And I go, so was Jesus. You know, I may not know what it is, but Jesus knows what it is to be falsely accused, to have false, not only just be falsely accused, but have false witnesses come against you and to be punished with capital punishment 
for no crime. And this is the idea. He knows our griefs you know, and understands it because he has been flesh and blood. He knows what it's like to have the temptations that we have. Jesus had to go through the teen years with all the raging hormones that are involved with the teen years because he started out as a baby. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn to feed himself. He had to learn to hold his temper and, hold his, and not become selfish like, the, like the, every child becomes. You know, he had to go through all of those hardships that we go and people make excuses for. Well, you know, if I didn't have all those hormones raging, raging through me, I would have never done any of this stuff. Well, Jesus had that same issue. Had the same issue. He bore our griefs, our burdens. There had to have been some point when Mary's parents died and his, and his grandparents died. And possibly Joseph's grandparents you know, parents would have died. Even though he's not the physical father, he was still raising him as his father, which meant that those families and families were tighter back then than they are now. So there would have been a whole bunch of relatives that died. He knows what it means to lose a relative. He knows what it means to go through hardships, to not have the money to go take care of things, to have to scrimp to get things because he was born in a poor family. He knows the griefs that we went to. Now, he didn't have a sin nature to, have, to add to it, but he still knows what the temptations are. He would have had Satan at his ear saying, you know, yeah, your grandmother that you really love is dead. You know, how, can, how, can that be, how can that be God's plan? How can that be good? Now, he was God. He had a little bit advantage to us than that, but he still would have had the same whispers in his ears and would have had just the same effect. He would have been in love with these aunts, uncles, grandparents, great-grandparents, and had some love for them. They, you know, they, they had to have been there to be raised. He knows our griefs and our sorrows. When he comes to comfort us, it's not because he doesn't know them he understands what we're going through. And then it says, yet we esteemed him stricken. In other words, we didn't pay any attention to him. <laughs> All right? How many times do we really think about what Jesus went through as, when he walked on this world? We think, okay, he was, he was born. Look at all the miracles of his birth. He went to, he went to uh, Egypt, was there for a period of time, came back to Nazareth. And the next thing we know, he's being baptized. Okay? Uh, what happened during all those years? We have no idea. We have one event that happened after his birth, and that was when he was in, the, in Jerusalem at 12 years old, in the temple, talking with the, the leaders of the temple and blowing their minds at how well he understood Scripture. At 12? At 12 years old. And they're going, where, you know, who, who is this kid? Where, 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 where has he learned all this stuff from? You know, which also tells us that Mary and Joseph had to have done, been good parents teaching him the Bible as well. Yes, he's God and you know, would have had a great understanding and the Spirit was right there helping to teach him, but he had to also have parents teaching him the Word. It wasn't like he just all of a sudden said, you know what, I know, I know the Bible. <laughs> you know, yes, I wrote the Bible. Yes, I'm the one that helped you know, speak, the, speak the words to these people, but as a child, he had to learn it. He had to have been raised up. And we know that his parents were godly because it says when they went to Jerusalem when he was 12 that it was their habit to do so. 
Joseph did just what he was supposed to do. Three times every year, he went to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. Every male was to do that. And obviously, Mary went on several occasions, probably not every single occasion, because she would have had her kids to take care of, other kids to take care of. But she obviously, at least on that occasion, had gone with Jesus and Joseph to Jerusalem when he disappeared when he was 12 years old. I don't know on that one. Okay. So I was it's possible. It's possible, but I don't believe that Jesus would have gone with him because he was under 12. Okay. At 12 years old, it might have been Jesus' first visit to Jerusalem because at 12 years old, he was considered a man. And he would have had to have gone. He would have been required at that point. Now, did he go before that? We don't know. At 12, at 12 he could have. I don't know. It quite possibly he did, but the whole family most likely did not. Thirty is when you were able to teach, oh. but at twelve years old you became an adult, That's when and it's only been recent in recent uh, decades that it has been that you're considered a child up until you're fifty years old in our in our generation. But you know, but it used to be, you know, when you were a teenager. If you read the stories of George Washington, uh, uh, Jefferson, all these guys. By the time they were 20, they had already had a long resume of jobs. Washington, before he was, before he was 20, had already surveyed Western, Western, uh, uh, West Virginia. He had already been in command of a military unit that fought in, uh, up in Canada. You know, this happened when we would still consider him a child. But in that day and age, you hit, you hit 12, 13 years old, you could be charged with adult crimes because you were considered to be responsible for your actions and be treated as an adult. It's, like I say, it's only been in recent years that we've legally said you're a child until 18. And in our generation, we've got people being children still at 50, 60 years old, still living at home with, with no, no maturity. So Jesus could have easily just said, yeah, I'm going. <laughs> Mom, Dad, you're not going. I'm going anyway. You know, and that's why he said, I'm about my father's business. I'm an adult. And yet he was subject to Mary and Joseph. Most kids did not leave home at 12 years old. But they would be apprenticed. They would start their jobs. They would start building their, they would start building their homes, you know, the men, so that they would get their job and their home ready so that when they did get married, they had a sta stable, stable position. And the women were married at 12, 13 years old in that day. All right, Mary, when she had, gave birth to Jesus, was, was a spouse to Joseph, and was probably only about 13 years old wow. when, when she gave birth to him. No more than 14 or 15, max, because that would have been way too old. If you, were, if you weren't married by the time you were 16 years old back in that day, you were, you were an old maid, and you, were not gonna, you probably weren't going to be, weren't gonna be married. There was something wrong with you. <laughs> All right. And we kind of look at that and go, whoa, that's mind-blowing. But it was the way things were. And it really hasn't been that long, even in the United States. In the 1700s, you were probably married by the time you were 14 or 15 years old and starting your family. And by that time, you probably had two or three kids. You know, it's only been in recent years, as, and this is what happens in history. The more a country gets into leisure and luxury, the longer they wait to get married, the longer they wait to have kids, 
and it gets to the point where we have where we are today where people say well the kids are in my way I can't afford to have kids because I, it ruins my fun I've heard this from several young couples you know the longer you push off to get married and go how can you afford to have have kids They'll go well I had my kids before I developed the going out to dinner every Friday night and and needing the two cars and all this stuff we had our kids and had to make our sacrifices because we hadn't established this high level of income because you're right you wait 10 years and you get used to that two income family and going out to eat all the time it's tough to have kids and kids get in the way that's how I always looked at it I got married I got married when we were 20 and our kids were kids were there after and it's like by 50 <laughs> they're out of the home and then you know we're starting to make money that we can actually do the things that you know that uh, they were trying to get to but Jesus had this lifestyle and he was stricken and even more than he was smitten of God and afflicted we kind of forget the purpose of this God sent Jesus to be the sacrifice knowing that that was what he was coming to this world for to be beat and punished for our sin and to die on the cross Jesus knew that before the foundation of the world he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world and they knew that when he came here he came to die you know, now we all know that eventually we're going to die. Outside of the rapture coming, we all will die. You know, that's just a known. You know, a lot of people think they're not going to die or act like they're not going to die, but it is a guarantee that, that if the rapture doesn't come before we die, we will die. Otherwise, we'll get taken into heaven because of the rapture. Smitten from God, is that because like you can be smitten with your boyfriend? Or no, no. This is being hurt. Okay. Being struck. When Jesus went to the cross, I mean, a lot of times people, and you'll hear this argument a lot of time, who crucified Jesus? Well, people go, the Jews crucified him. Well, the Jews were the ones that took him to court to charge him. So they go, okay, the Romans crucified him. Jesus himself told Caesar, if the power hadn't been granted to you, you would not have the power to kill me. All right? We can come down to say that we killed him with our sin, and that would be a closer to the true statement. But the one who really killed him was God. And we're going to hit some verses in here that really sound harsh as we look at this. God beat him. Jesus was called our propitiation. And it's a very big word, but it means he took all the anger of the Father for our sins on himself. All of it. Not part of the anger. All of the anger. And you, when you really start understanding... God's opinion and looking at sin, Jesus took all of the anger God has for sin upon him, Jesus. That's a lot of anger. And he took it willingly. You know, this is what I keep saying. He could have at any time just said, Father, these people aren't worth it. I don't want to have anything to do with them. They're just not worth it. And we really weren't. But yet, to God, we're worth it. Why? I have no idea. We're made in his image, but that's not, a, that's not all it's going to take. You know, he, well, he loves us, but again, why? He chooses to love us. 
There's nothing intrinsic to us that he loves us for. And Jesus was smitten by God for our sins. Verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Now that verse is used so many times by people saying, well, everybody's going to be healed physically. This verse in context has nothing to do with physical healing. This is all about spiritual healing. So Jesus came, he was wounded. Why? Not for his own transgressions. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was beat. You know, it says that while he was out there, they scourged him, which means that we've talked about this. They took a cat of the, the Roman flagellum, a cat of nine tails, uh, whatever you want to call it, seven to, seven to 11 strands of leather, weighted down and beat him with it. And a lot of people will try to go, well, because the Jews put him there, he only had 39 because the Jews had a rule that you couldn't strike somebody more than 40 times with a whip. They weren't the Jews that beat him. The Romans had one rule on the scourging. You couldn't kill the victim. You can give him as many lashes as you wanted, but you couldn't kill him. And those Roman soldiers made a game out of the beating of their scourging. Their goal was to say, they would take bets on which guy striking him could get the most skin and chunks of meat off that person's back with each strike. And they'd pick them all up and weigh them and measure them and all these things. And they, they played a game with this. They thought it was a game. And this is who beat Jesus. This is, and he was bruised for our iniquities. And then he had to carry the cross after that. All right. And it says, for our peace was upon him. Why did he stay there? Because he knew our peace depended on him going through all of this. And after, even before that, they took, put him, put a sack over his head and started smacking him and saying, okay, you're a prophet, tell us who hit you. Mm. Now, if you've ever been hit by a blindsided punch, you know how hard that is. Oh. And knowing that it's coming is even worse. So we see the beating that he took. And then as was said, they put, he carried the cross. And we think of the cross as this nice, smooth piece of wood, and it was not a piece of smooth wood. It was rough full of splinters, would have been bad enough on a non-mutilated back, and he's carrying a cross of splinters on his back. Every step would have driven a splinter into his back. And we all know what it's like to get a small splinter and, and, not, and, and just one. Then they get him to the, to the Golgotha, and they lay him on this cross, and they nail him on a cross, and they didn't just set the cross up. They would, once he was nailed, they, they picked that cross up and it fell a foot to two feet down and would have yanked on his wrists and his feet and drove splinters on his back. Scourging isn't necessarily used, that word. And so um, in one class, I, you know, I read them out of this one where it says scourging, and I explained to them how you would explain to me, and they are all just like very stunned. And I'm like, hey, you need to understand what he really went through. And even the, whoever was leading the class was just like, like, yeah, look it up, you know. Yeah. And it'd be good to understand some things, but 
and you really want to know, you got to get into something like this so you can understand truly. Yeah. The cost that he paid was dear. Yeah. For it us. Was, it wasn't for us. Life. So that we could be healed spiritually. And he did it willingly. He was forced to do it. Well, in one sense he was, because when he agreed yeah. before the foundation of the earth that he was going to die, right. he was bound by his word. Right. So, but he did it willingly. Right. willingly. He, he willingly gave, gave his word, even knowing what was going to happen, because he knew the beginning from the end, even before it started. It was just hard to, hard to imagine. But we see here the penalty that he paid for us, already forecast. And he did it so that we could be healed knowing that he was going to take the full brunt of the anger of the Father upon his body. And, you know, it's, it's hard to understand how much he loves us. And I think it's so important for us to really truly understand what did Jesus go through? You know, because when, I don't know how many of you ever saw the Passion of the Christ, you know, but when that was a big deal, and everybody was making a big deal of how bad it was and how, how violent it was. So when I went to that, I fully expected to see a true picture of the crucifixion, and I was actually shocked at how nonviolent it was compared to what he went through. Now, I'm not saying it was a, non, you know, was a nice, pretty picture, but compared to what he went through, it was not even, didn't even touch the surface of what he went through. And then you see the fact that when you were on the cross with crucifixion, you were also put up there naked. Because that was the ultimate, especially for the Jews, that was an ultimate insult to be put naked in front of the crowd. You know, and to be beaten and full of blood and no sin, no sin on him at that point in time when he first started. He's the perfect lamb. And then the father laid all of the sin of the entire world upon him. I can't imagine what that felt. Well, especially when you've had no sin. It's bad enough for us with sin, but what Jesus had to have felt, I have no idea what that would be like, because I know what it feels like to be guilty for my own sin. And to have all the sin of the world placed on your perfect body and mind. And then, and then the father turns turns his back and abandons you for the first time in all eternity. The father and the Holy Spirit suffered for our salvation as well. Their fellowship with Jesus was broken. For the first time in all of history, they were separated. We don't even know what that would be like. We can kind of think about it, you know, our, our closest friend or our, our spouse and, and having that relationship broken. That doesn't even fit what he went through. You know, if we think about our first love, the first, first, you know, first boyfriend, girlfriend that we had, you know, and when that broke up and then we were devastated for days, you know, uh, because of that breakup. That was still nothing compared to what the Father and the Holy Spirit went through with Jesus and Jesus himself. And why did he go through this? Because of verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us into our, uh, to his own ways. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every single person who's ever lived has gone astray. 
Why? Because we are sinners. We sin because we are sinners. We're born sinners, and we're going to sin. Now, we may get disciplined enough to, to work that sin out to, to where it doesn't show up, but we're still sinners. You know, the old story about a boy being sat in the corner because he couldn't sit still and wouldn't obey his mom, and he looked at his mom and said, I may be sitting down in, in this corner, but I'm running around in my mind. All right? He's rebellious. We can all be just as rebellious, even when we're fitting in with the, with the good crowd. We can still be rebellious. Well, if I had my way, I'd be doing something else, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the good part. Everybody's going to think that I'm good. You know, good thing they can't read my mind. Because <laughs> if they could read my mind, I'd be in trouble. God can read our mind. He already knows. And so we all go astray, and God laid our iniquity on Jesus. The power of this thought. He took the pain. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. What amazed Pilate so much about Jesus was Jesus did not speak to him, didn't try to defend himself. Pilate knew that he was innocent, but Pilate was a wimpy politician. He knew the people wanted him dead. He knew there might be a riot if he let him go, so he gave in and convicted Jesus knowing that he was innocent. Now, and this happens a lot. Jesus knows what it means to be innocent and to know that everybody knows that he's innocent and to die anyway. When people come to him and say, you don't understand, and Jesus says, no, I fully understand what it means to have false witnesses. I fully understand what it means to be falsely accused. You weren't even, half of you weren't even falsely accused, but I know what it means to be suffering for, for no reason. And he says, his mouth, he, he'd opened not his mouth he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a shear before her lamb, a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Can you imagine what the God of the universe could have said to, to anybody out there? All he had to do was speak one word, and they would have all been dead. We see that in, in Revelation when he comes back at the Battle of Armageddon. All he does is speak, and the enemy's dead. Very quick war. Satan gathers up all the enemies, they're ready to fight the lamb, and he just speaks and they die. Yeah. We really don't fully understand the power of God in many cases. You know, I am so glad that God does not get distracted. He holds everything together. The very atoms cannot exist without him holding together because you cannot have the protons stuck together and hold together and you can't have the electrons flying around it without collapsing into the protons. God holds the very atoms together. If he had one nanosecond of forgetfulness, this world would be over. Oh, oh my goodness, I forgot about him for, for just, a, just a fraction of a second. The whole world is gone. But he never forgets us. He's always aware of everything we do, everything we are, everything we will do and will be. People were used to seeing the gladiators killing each other for fun, you know, that was beating each other, beating and all that stuff. They, people enjoyed that stuff. We do too. Look at the movies we watch. And it is getting, as she was saying, it's getting worse. We want to see these cage fights with these guys each other, and we get excited about it. 
you know, we, we want to watch sports that are, that are really violent and, and harmful, and it's getting worse, but it's, it's nothing new. The Romans did it, the Greeks did it, the Egyptians did it. There, there's, you know, and the whole point of this comes down to as we get used to sin, we go deeper into sin. It doesn't matter what the sin is. All right. We start, you start with alcohol and you can't get the same buzz. So you've got to drink more alcohol. You get drugs and you have to get deeper and deeper into drugs because you just don't get that feeling. You get into stealing and it, you, know, you have to go deeper and deeper because you're, the, the thrill is gone. You know, I can go in, you know, and I've heard people say I could go into anybody's house and take anything. It wouldn't, didn't bother me at all because they got so used to it. And to get any kind of thrill at all, they had to go something else. Somebody had to be home or had to really take something big or, and it gets worse and worse. Same thing with sexual sins. We, it gets deeper and deeper to the point where it, it, the simple act or thought isn't enough and you have to do more and more and more. Sin always demands more. And violence is the same thing. We get adjusted to it. You know, when people used to just shoot guns off in the early days of the movies, and people would die. No blood, nothing. Oh, that was so awful. Look at all these people that died. Now we've got to see the blood. We've got to see the head be chopped off. We've got to see the bullet actually penetrate and the blood splash around. You know? And we have to see more and more to get that same, oh, this is you know, horrible. You know, we get used to sin and get callous toward it. And this is why when we finally get right with God and all of a sudden we start seeing sin for what it is and God starts opening our eyes. I was listening to one of the, the Unshackled uh, programs which are testimonies of people getting saved and one of the guys said that he went out into the world and saw things the way God saw them you know, when he walked into the bar and saw how awful the bar scene was. And that was where he had lived. I mean, he got off work, he went to the bar and came home at 3 o'clock in the morning, fought with his wife and went back to, went to work and went back to the bar and thought it was the greatest thing to do. And then he said he got saved and all of a sudden saw it for the emptiness that was there. And we've all experienced this at some point in whatever sin God is calling us out of. Something that we thought was so wonderful and great and all of a sudden God starts opening our eyes and we're going, why did I ever think any of this was any good? <laughs> And I got news for anybody who's there. It's going to only get more and more. Oh, God keeps opening up and s because he knows that we can't handle it all at once. Okay. And I've shared with you. I watch, I look at TV and look at the shows that I used to watch. And they're considered good shows. And I'm looking at it going, how could I have ever watched a show that was so much against the way God does things? And I'm talking about, I'm not going to name off the shows that I, that I have this attitude about. They're considered good shows. And I'm going, wow, how could I have ever watched that show? How could I have ever thought that that was entertainment? And it's only getting worse. <laughs> and I'm not downplaying TV. I'm just saying TV is my big one that God is getting after me on. All right? But it could be anything. Yeah. The, the more you're with him, the more you see. The more you see things the way he sees them. And it gets heartbreaking. The, because now we start seeing people as captives that they really are. Because we were captives. And we were captives sometimes even as we got saved, we stayed as captives until God opens our eyes. And then we start 
should be leading us to a compassion for people. We realize that we were captive in that area, and it's like, God, help us to see, help, help those others to see. And this is exactly what it says in verse 9. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? Jesus was taken into captivity. We are in captivity. One of the things that I, I loved in the Truth Project is when Dale Tackett was t- saying that when people are not saved, they are POWs to sin. They have no rights. They are in prison. Without Christ, they are in prison. They cannot help what they have. And even if they want to, there's a fence around them that won't let them out. And this is why it takes God in our life to free us. We can't even free ourselves because our sin nature has to be crucified for me to even get free of the sin that Jesus took upon himself. And then he comes and says, here's my strength. Let's, let's walk out of this prison. And we may, be going, we may be coming out of prisons our entire lifetime that we don't even know that we were in until he steps in and says, look around you. Let's get out of this prison. Well, God, I don't know. I kind of like it in this prison. It, it's, it, it's comfortable. I know how to live in this prison. And God says, no, let's, go, let's take you out. Let's take you out into freedom. And you get out into freedom, and it's like, wow, this is, this is wonderful. And it's, it's great to be there. And it says, for he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Jesus was beat for our sins. And he was dead for three days. He was taken out of the, of the living. Verse 9 says, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. He was considered wicked. Matter of fact, he was so wicked, they put a guard on him because they were afraid that they were going to steal his body. And whose, whose grave site did he get into? Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, gave him a rich grave to be buried in, just as it said would be done. He was buried in the best, best grave that he could find at that time. You know, And uh, so he was there, and he was stricken, and he had no violence and no deceit. That's kind of an interesting statement when you think about it. He had never hurt anybody, and there was no deceit. There is nobody that ever has walked on this world that can't say they had never deceived anybody. Even the most honest person out there has deceived and told a lie at some point in their life. Jesus, no violence. He'd never harmed anybody. Now you go, well, he chased the people out of the temple with a whip. Yes, he did justice, but he wasn't being violent. He was, and this is where we can get into, and I say people can go, well, you know, we're told you can be angry and sin not. It's tough. And I have said all along, if you're angry about something that's happened to you, you're going to sin because you've already sinned. You're angry because your pride has been hurt. Your flesh has been hurt, and now you're angry. Now, I may be able to get angry and not sin if somebody else is being hurt and defend them, and I might even have to get violent to defend them. 
am, I can get there and not sin because I'm defending them and their dignity and their honor. That's how God is with us. He defends us, and he can defend pretty violently. I've shared with you, I know a man who got greatly punished because of his attack against a pastor, and the sad thing was his family suffered because of his sin. And then he got sick, and then he died because of his sin. And God is defending his children, and he does not get angry. He just makes sure it gets done. He's not, he does not have anger in his heart when he disciplines. And true discipline does not have anger in it. My dad, when I was growing up, always said, you go upstairs and think about what you did. Now, I hated that because I hated there was worse punishment going up and thinking about what I had done and waiting for the spanking than it was, you know, just getting the spanking. But my dad was very wise. He had a temper. And he knew that the time to spank us was not while he was mad at us. And I learned the same lesson with my kids. Don't spank my kids when I was angry. I would say, you go up there and think about it, and I'll be up there in a little bit. And it was for me. It wasn't for them. I didn't even care if they thought about what they had done. It was for me to get into a mindset that when I gave them a spanking or the discipline, that it was really discipline. It was not my anger being, being displayed to them. That is the way God is with us. He is not shedding his anger on us. He is disciplining us. And Jesus took all of God's discipline upon himself for our sin. He could have easily said, hey, Father, this isn't fair. Uh, I didn't do anything. But he stayed silent and said, I am going to take this, mostly because he said he was going to. <laughs> he said before the foundation of the earth that he'd do it, and he did. He took our punishment. And now for the very interesting verse that bothers a lot of people, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put on him, put him to grief. When you should make his soul an offering of sin, he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It pleased God to bruise Jesus. That's a harsh statement. All right? And it wasn't him going, ah, I'm really beating my son. What was his pleasure in? His pleasure was in the fact that our sin was being paid for and we were being redeemed. It wasn't, okay, I just can't wait to beat my, I just can't wait to beat my son. It was the result of it was what pleased him. My son is going to take all the punishment and I get out of this all the world that accepts that sacrifice. He looked at the end of what was going on and said, I can't get all the people of the world without Jesus being beat. So I'm taking the pleasure in this because of what I get. And this is something that we as Christians can do. Sometimes we look at it and if we really truly believe, Romans 8:28, for all things work together for good, for those who are called according to the purpose of God, we can say, no matter what comes our way, God, I'm looking forward to what's going to come. Don't understand it, maybe. Don't know how it's going to be good. Don't know what good's going to come out of it. But you have promised good. And that means no matter what comes at us, if we truly believe that verse, we just grab hold of it and say, God, 
I can't wait to see what good is going to come out. <laughs> yeah, it hurts. It's painful. I don't like it. I don't even like it a little bit, but you have promised that it's going to be good, and I'm going to hold on to the fact that it's going to be good. Now, that good may not come till heaven. It may, we may not see what the good is until heaven. Usually, we will still see what the good, because it usually trains us for something that's coming our way and prepares us. It may even be for somebody else. And I've shared with you the time that I went through a lot of pain and somebody came back to me a year later and said, you really encouraged me by walking with God when you were in obvious pain. So it wasn't for me, though I'm going to get blessed in heaven for it. It was for them to be encouraged to walk stronger. And in the long run in heaven, I will get some reward because I suffered without knowing what was going on. How many times do we walk through something that is for somebody else's good? I don't know. I don't know. If you listen to people's salvation uh, testimonies, a lot of times it's what went bad in a Christian's life that encouraged them to follow God because they go, they weren't crushed. If I went through that, I'd have been deep in the bottle or deep into my drugs or deep into whatever my favorite sin is, hiding. And they had a strength that allowed them to walk through it. And you'll hear it over and over in these, in these testimonies. What is God doing in our life? We don't know. That was the, what Betsy was saying. You know, we don't know what God is doing. Even when we make our mistakes and, and mess up our life, God says, I'm still going to use it. You know, and that's why I keep bringing up, for all things work together for good. Not most, not some, not the good things, all things. All that I went through before I get saved works together for good. All the hardships and trials I go through after I'm saved is for good, that God is going to work together for good. What they are, I don't know. <laughs> I may never know, but God knows. And you know, it's very amazing how many times you, God uses what we go through to minister to other people. You know, well, let me just tell you, you know, I, I can understand what you're going through because I went through something similar, so let me tell you what God did for me. Maybe they'll get saved, maybe they won't, but at least it plants a seed into their mind about what God does. And God says that he was pleased to lay the punishment on Jesus. Why? For us. For us. So he says, every stripe that he allowed to be placed on Jesus was for our pain instead of us getting it. So that God could then take and forgive us. Because people like to look at God's love. And it's great. God is loving. He is merciful. He is gracious. But he is also completely holy and righteous. He cannot ignore sin. Sin had to be paid for. And it was paid for at the cross. The only sin that is out there now is what have you done with Jesus? If you reject Jesus Christ and do not accept him as your Lord and Savior, you will go to hell. Not because of all the bad things you did. Jesus paid for that but because you rejected the gift. How do we get to heaven? We accept that gift. Say, Father, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that gift of salvation. Oh, God, I'm glad it's nothing that I do. Because if it was what I do, I'd be in trouble. Because even, even though a lot of people think that I'm a good person, I know that I'm not a good person. I deserve, I deserve all the bad, too. Because you know what? When you look at somebody you think they're good, if you really knew what they were thinking and their, how often they wanted to do the wrong thing, maybe, and didn't, 
you'd probably be surprised that they're probably worse than you are. Okay? You're just acting out <laughs> and doing, and they're fighting a constant battle of, oh, I could just get away with it. I'd go, I would do that. I just want to kill that person, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. You know, and they may even be able to keep their face and their, and their emotions in check. But God still knows, and so do they. They also know how evil their thoughts are, which is why there's going to be a lot of good people in hell. Because God says, I know what you wanted to do. I know what you wanted to do. You may, you may not have killed those 28 people that you thought about killing, but I know you really wanted to. You're a multi-mass murderer. You know, I know how many times you wanted to lie. You're quite a liar. You know, I know how many times you wanted to steal. I know how many times you wanted to commit adultery and fornication. You may not have done it, but I know, God says, I know how many times you wanted to. And so we need to be very careful about how we look at people. How we look at people and how we look at ourselves. Usually we're pretty good about ourselves. We know, we know our thoughts. You know, and we want to be given grace because we know we didn't necessarily do things with the wrong motive. And yet, do we treat others with that same kind of compassion? You know, uh, how much time did they reject the sin? This is something we have to really keep in mind. And this is one of the reasons I've said over and over, I do not want to judge any of these great Christian leaders who have fallen into adultery. How many times did they say no before they finally fell? You know, it probably wasn't the first time it came up. It probably wasn't the, even the, the hundredth time it came up. It might have been the thousandth or the ten thousandth time it came up. And they finally fell. Because Satan just keeps throwing the bait out over and over and over and over again. And this is why we need to be careful. Anything, and I've said this several times, anything you don't think that you would ever fail in, be careful because that's exactly where you're going to fail because you're not going to put the guard and Satan's going to put enough temptation in there that you're going to fall. Never, ever think there's a place in your life that you think, never fall in that place. I've got victory over that. I will never fall in that. No, you'll probably fall in that area. And most of these guys, I'm sure, have, would, would have said in their younger days, I would never commit adultery. I would never steal from the church, whatever it might be that they fell into. But given the right opportunities, enough temptation, the right circumstances, and you end up falling. And it's not that hard to figure the circumstances. Most people do not go out and say, I think I'm going to commit adultery today. Not the first time, anyway. They may get themselves in a lifestyle that they start thinking that way. But that first one doesn't usually come that way. It's just the right person at the right moment coming along. You've had bad, bad time with your spouse for a year. You haven't, haven't, not really close together. And then somebody comes and just likes you and is nice to you. And the next thing you know, it goes too far. Then it gets easier and easier and easier after that. So yes, you can get to the place where you, but that first time is usually not, well, I just feel so miserable. I'm going to go out and find somebody today. It usually is one of those situations, and almost all sin is that. The first, first time is you kind of find yourself, how in the world did I get here? How did I get into this bar? How did I get into this drug house? How did I get into this, this house with this other person? How did I get into this situation now that I'm lying, lying through my teeth to get out of? How did, you know, and we go over and over again, and we just find ourselves in there because we did not put guards on our heart, and the right opportunities and the right circumstances come, come together and all of a sudden we're going, wow, you know, how did I fall away from church for a year? You know, 
It started with some people being busy at work and people saying, no, not calling me. Then I got into a pity party. And then I just started drifting off. Now, should they have maybe called me? Probably. But it's still my reaction to say, nobody loves me and take it personal. You know, we need to be careful because we start taking things personal and we're in trouble. You know, and we start attaching motive to people's comments. I love it when somebody says something very innocent and you hear somebody else's description of it and you're going, did you hear the same words I heard? Yeah. You know, like, you, you read their mind and know that this is what they meant? Yeah. You know, they said, well, I've missed you. And they're going, what did you mean by that? <laughs> you know, I missed you. you know, I missed you? Uh, what, what are you meaning by that? You know, uh, and then you start adding in all these words into, the, into their brain and you start reading their mind. And now you're not even reacting to their words. You're acting to your reading of what you think they meant. And then you don't come to church. You get out of the fellowship with God because you created this whole imaginary scenario of what they meant. And we need to be so careful about that because whether it's true or not doesn't even matter because it's still, I need to express God's love to people. Whether, whether I feel like they're being nice to me or not, I have to express God's love to them, and we do, all of us. You know, and, and give them the benefit of the doubt. Hopefully they did miss us. <laughs> Last two verses real quick. Verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul, that's the Father, looking at Jesus, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. God is satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus. He says, he paid all the debt. God no longer looks at our sin. He looks at our righteousness, which Isaiah later on in Isaiah 64 is going to say, all of our righteousness is filthy rags. <laughs> so the problem that people are going to have, people are thinking they're going to go to hell because of their sin. No, when they stand at the white throne judgment, they are going to be clothed in their righteousness. To be standing before the court of heaven in filthy rags and for the first time see what their goodness looks like. And they look down and say, God, I've done all these, uh, uh, I thought they were good things, you know. Uh, what, are, what are all these rags on me? They're your good things. When they stand before the court of heaven, at the white throne judgment, they're going to be judged for their righteousness not being perfect. We stand at the bema seat of Christ as Christians. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which is perfect garments. We will have the best suit you've ever worn when you stand before God in Jesus Christ. And he says, oh, this is my perfect child. Come on in. And when the people get sent to hell, it's going to be because their righteousness is not good enough to stand before God because Jesus took the sin. He satisfied the sin. When people go to hell, it's because they're not good enough to go to heaven. Their righteousness will be judged and they're going, sorry, you're not clothed right. God has an absolute clothing standard for, for coming into heaven. And that's the righteousness of Jesus. You don't have his righteousness on, him, on, you're not clothed well enough to enter heaven. Without it, you'll be rejected. And that rejection is more than just being turned away at the door. That is going to hell. And it's all because Jesus paid for it. 
says in verse 12, Therefore I will divide to him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, and he shall be poor, he shall pour out his soul unto death, and his and be numbered with the transgressors, and he shall bear the sin and be made intercession and make intercession for the transgressors. Jesus took on our sins and he makes intercession for us. This is a beautiful picture. Satan comes into the throne room of heaven, the Father sitting on the throne. Satan comes in to make accusation against us as Christians. Jesus stands up and says, Father, I paid for that. And Satan's mouth is shut. Because every time he turns around and Jesus says, I paid for that. My blood covered that. My blood covered that. Jesus stands up and says, Father, the sins are paid for. Now the question is, how are we clothed? Have I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and he clothes me with his righteousness? And then he starts crucifying my flesh so that I can live in a sanctified manner in various activities? And he says, these are my children. And you know what? God is just as jealous about his children as any of us would be about our children. But God is pretty much the same way because he says we are perfect because he sees us as perfect. How does he see us as perfect? Because he already sees us as what we will be when we are glorified. We get saved. He declares us perfect from the courts of heaven just like, the, just like a, a bankruptcy. You come into the court owing a lot of money and the court says now you don't owe any money. Okay, that is what happens at the justification. God says, okay, you came in owing me, a, owing me a whole lot of money, because a whole lot of debt because of your sin. Okay, forgiven. You don't owe God anything anymore because you have Jesus Christ, righteousness. What a blessing that is. When we get saved, he lifts the burden of sin off of us and we are light because we don't owe God anything. God is not standing up there and saying, okay, now what are you going to do to buy this back? How are you going to pay me back? Because we can't pay him back. You know, when he gave the parable of the man that owed him millions of dollars worth of, and forgave him, and then that man wouldn't forgive the brother that owed him about $100, you know, he says, no. The king says, no, you are, you're, going to, you're now going to pay you know, you couldn't take and understand what forgiveness was. Now, for our case, God doesn't take it away. But the point was, we are to love others that owe nothing to us. Because we might think it's a great, great, great debt, but God says, they don't owe you anything. You owed me a great debt. Forgive them. You know, well, God, they really hurt me. And God says, yeah, you hurt me. Well, God, uh, well, God uh, and our mouth needs to be shut at that point because we, our sins hurt God. All right, we're going to close here. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for how much you cared. You took the punishment that we deserve on you and that the Father gave it all on you so that he could love us and forgive us. And then you took this willingly. Lord, help us to understand that great love. Help us to show that love to others. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.